like many Buddhist Pali words, uh, some don't have any one word in in English or most Western languages to define it, and they needs a more of a poetic cluster of words. So one of these is is called Samvega. And Samvega usually you see translated as spiritual emotion, like a deep spiritual emotion, or spiritual urgency. I think of it as a spiritual courage, energy, or confidence. It's when that fire lights up in us that takes us on a path of awakening. This comes from uh, Annie Dillard's early book, uh, I think, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Yeah. The secret of seeing is, then, the pearl of great price. If I thought he could teach me to find it and keep it forever, I would stagger barefoot across a hundred deserts after any lunatic at all. But although the pearl may be found, it may not be sought. The literature of illumination reveals this above all. Although it comes to those who wait for it, it is always, even to the most practiced and adept, a gift and a total surprise. I cannot cause light. The most I can do is try to put myself in the path of its beam. It is possible in deep space to sail on solar wind. Light, be it particle or wave, has force. You rig a giant sail and you go. The secret of seeing is to sail on solar wind. Hone and spread your spirit till you yourself are a sail, wetted, translucent, broadside to the merest puff. I think the first time I had a feeling sense of samvega, spiritual urgency or that um, glimpse of possibility. I was six years old and I was, lived for a year in Japan. My parents brought my sister and I uh, from Honolulu, one of those long boat trips. And it was, it was a year of firsts. I'd never seen or been in snow. I'd never been on a horse. Never been on a train. I'd never been on such a huge mountain as Mount Fuji. And I had never seen such display of devotion or emotion, spiritual emotion, as I remember standing before the Kamakura Buddha, which is huge, at least three times the size of our Dhamma Hall. And I remember it so clearly, that year of firsts. People putting flowers, you know, or incense at the feet or in folded hands of this huge statue. In fact, this looks like Kamakura Buddha, the one behind me. And it was just, it was, I was entranced. I was transported by that, not yet even knowing what it meant. But, I, you know, I could feel that devotion, display of faith. And then the other thing that was so moving about it is my parents took us around the back of the Kamakura Buddha and we went inside and went up these steps. And it was really confusing for me. And I was asking my parents, you know, where's its stomach? Where's its heart? And at the top, where is its brain? It's just empty. Those two things, the devotion and the emptiness, you know, just sort of remained with me forever. And then, 
years later, particularly in Burma, I really understood it. <clears throat> it was like living in a village of this spiritual emotion and faith, confidence in, in this Dhamma practice. I see how I hold this spiritual urgency like this, you know. Once we get a glimpse of what it feels like to be really present, totally present, to be awake, there's this kind of healthy fear of slipping back into a spiritual slumber. It's like it's really hard to go back. And if we are back there, there's, we feel an unease, we feel an anguish. Like we lost something, we forgot something, or we have to get back to something. That's what it's like when once that, that fire starts. And, and for me, it started in the 60s um, with everything kind of exploding in all the relevant fields of ecology and feminism and civil rights and anti-war and, uh, and the first gleanings of, of deep wisdom, deep psychology, contemplation, meditation. And I started to look into the, all, the, all the contemplative traditions, East and West. Traveled up and down the, this coast, you know, from Vancouver to San Diego, and met a lot of extraordinary elders. I was really lucky to have met so many different elders. One teacher I had, I met her when she was 90 years old. She was my teacher for seven years, the last seven years of her life in Southern California, contemplative Christian tradition. You know, she was definitely transmitting something really powerful. And I can still see, that was in the 60s, I can still see her lucid blue eyes and how she would talk about, you know, God coming right to her windows of her cottage, just right there in the form of light, in the form of starlight. It's just remarkable. And then, you know, I, I came across this tradition, and it wasn't so much uh, the first book or the first Dhamma talk. Like I've said before, even years later when, I, when we were allowed to go into Burma, I still wasn't looking for a teacher. I was looking for a practical, a living practice. You know, a method to bring out these beautiful states, the meaning of that word, Pali word, bhavana, for meditation, to bring forth our innate and beautiful states. So, But as soon as I heard it, heard about Vipassana, and particularly the this lineage that's been protected in Burma for thousands of years, I, I knew it was it. I was just on fire with that. And you know, unlike Michelle's first retreat that she talked, told us about last night, I was so excited, my first retreat. It was like an adventure of consciousness. I didn't I hardly slept, you know. And it, was, it wasn't all really that skillful. It was really competitive. Like there was a few yogis there, and we'd see who could sit the longest, <laughs> sit all night. You know, it got to be where we tried to trick each other and... One person would leave, and then it was like, I can go to bed now. <laughs> and this one guy from, you know, another Burmese tradition, he could just sit like a Buddha. And I was just determined to beat him. <laughs> <laughs> so I sat, you know, for we sat for three hours or something in the middle of the night. And then I acted like I was, you know, rolling up the mat to go to bed. But I went out, I just waited for him. <laughs> And he came out, and I, he saw me walking in. <laughs> he wasn't going to come back, you know. He was going to let me win that night. <laughs> but, you know, still there were moments of, of genuine nurturing that, that, that flame, that samvega. I was really, really on fire. I also took a vow of silence, which upset my teachers. So all the interviews, I wrote down the questions. <laughs> And, you know, wouldn't talk. It's at that extreme. And so not long later, not long after that, 
You know, I went on my sort of solo journey overland from Greece to India, taking kind of three months to do that, and uh, finally arriving in, in India and meeting teachers in, in Bodh Gaya, the place where the Buddha became Buddha, where Siddhartha became Buddha, and uh, awakened. And I just thought I was going for a couple of months, the most, and I was there for two years, first time. Uh, and I began to get a sense, because there was a Burmese teacher in Bodh Gaya, he's still there, unbelievably. It's 40 years later, still alive, and, and still the abbot of the Burmese uh, monastery in Bodh Gaya, India. I didn't. I just even had a stronger feeling for this this flame that's been kept alive as a lineage passed down by nuns and monks and lay women and men for two and a half thousand years, and still really had this 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 energy and this this some vega for practice, and started to have a, a feeling that there were these two aspects to our to our practice that make it, that bridge retreat to daily life, you know, and, and make our life, our practice, start to not seem like a, a duality, but it's just a seesaw when one system is up, we're in deep retreat, and then we have to kind of totally let go of all the benefits and fruits of our practice, of our deep retreat practice for daily life. I started to since it's not like that, that there's there's a transformational part of this practice, such as the the metta, compassion, joy, equanimity practices, and our uh, you know all the practices that increase courageous energy, the virya, and practices that bring out that deep non-sensual joy, that rapture, that childlike zest, unbridled passion for life. They're so healing. And they help transform or rearrange, reorganize our, our fractured personalities. Um, and that's balanced with transformational practices that, that develop and evolve our personality, makes us a better person, is balanced and inseparable from the transcendent aspect of vipassana, or spiritual practice. And that's that what senses there's more than birth and death, life and death, more than our personality. There's something deeper than what appears and what seems to be this very short life. And that's particularly felt when we get in touch with our goodness, when we feel the preciousness of life. The Buddha often spoke, you know, that the human realm was the best to receive these teachings. There are lighter realms, the realms of the celestial beings, the devas, that have like light bodies and live for seemingly, you know, ages. And there are darker realms, denser and thicker, more painful, more challenging, difficult. The human realm has more or less a balance of, of dukkha, you know, pain, suffering, anguish, and sukha, happiness, pleasure, enjoyment, delight. And because of that, because we can get a sense of both, we may be goaded, we may be you know, touched by that samvega, that spiritual urgency. What do I do with this one brief, precious life? You know, I'm, a couple of months ago, I'm six years old in Kamakura, Japan. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm 60-something. Where'd that go? You know, and I'm still just as in love with the practice you know, 40 years later from, from starting it. So I spent time 
in Bodhgaya for years before I was able allowed anyone was allowed to go into Burma. And I I got really inspired by not just people in in this lineage or tradition. You know, there were a lot of Tibetans and, and Zen practitioners and various Southeast Asian related traditions to this this one called the Way of the Elders, Theravada, the Path of the Elders. And one was one place I practiced for th- three months or four months during the hot season was at the Japanese uh, Zen temple there. And there was this young Zen master. He was also on fire. You know, he had the same samvega. He loved the practice. And he loved being there and able to teach. Um, but he also had these duties. It was like an assignment from from Tokyo to to run this pilgrimage. It consisted of this really awesome Japanese temple and a huge gong that would all ring on New Year's and special events, a school for the poor children around around Bodhgaya, and a pilgrimage house. It was mostly filled with Japanese tourists who, who didn't come, most of them, out of this Samvega. You know, they came to party and to take pictures. And the, it was often filled with smoke and sake. And this was frustrating to Shibuya-san, is the name of my Zen teacher and master. So he was always kind of battling with the authorities back in Tokyo. And his love was in the early morning and the late evening. In the daytime, he looked after the school, the pilgrimage, the grounds, which was beautiful, Zen, you know, raked sand and reeds, bamboo, huge stones, ponds, beautiful Zen garden. And just, he was really, very good, you know, really good caretaker. And he was busy in the office, then at 10 o'clock, he'd go to bed, and he'd sleep four hours. And I kind of, I was practicing, I was I was lucky, um, uh, perhaps from being introduced by this um, Indian man who lived as a monk and practiced in Burma for a very long time with Mahasi Sayadaw, to be allowed to stay there and practice. So just only a few Westerners. Mostly, you know, backpackers would come up and they'd want to stay there. And Shibuya-san would just say, not possible. <laughs> and they'd ask again, say again, not possible. And it's just, he just, till they left, he'd say, not possible. And then to be there, we had certain jobs. So a friend of mine from Australia, who we teach with sometime, Lynn Bousfield, she, she was also lucky to stay there. And her job was cleaning rice. And I had an unusual job. My job was to take a, a, a furo, which is like a, Japan, like a Japanese equivalent of a hot tub, with Shibuya-san before he went to bed every evening. So from 9 to 10, we were, it was a double furo. One was freezing cold water, and the other was really, really hot water. That was my job. Quite the yogi job. Yeah, quite the yogi job. He sleep. We'd both then go to sleep. Ten to two. And then we'd meet in the temple. And because it was a hot season, it was a huge temple, you know, and there was this like this medieval wooden trapdoor like thing that lifted up off the floor. And we'd go down into a, a cool dungeon, just candlelit with some vents for air. And we have one sit from two to six. And he could sit. <laughs> How do I know? Because, you know, just I was so excited. Just always too much energy. I was watching him. Every few minutes I opened my eyes and there he was. I tried to catch him doing anything, you know, moving, yawning, 
but it, it, nothing, just like the Buddha, stone still. And then right at six, and I could never see him look at a watch or anything, he'd ring a little bell, just the two of us. And uh, well, once there was a man from India who was there for a while, I remember, because he passed a lot of gas. I was glad when he left <laughs> after a week. Six o'clock, we went up, and then there'd be a dozen or 20 Western practitioners who, who come from other guest houses or other monasteries in Bodh Gaya, and we'd have a practice session from uh, uh, sitting to a little walking to a, a reading, you know, from Japanese Zen tradition. And then we'd come out to the corner of the temple, and we'd all face the Bodhi tree about 400 meters away, and Shibuya-san be in front. And, and I'd usually be behind unless there was a visiting monk. And then I would be behind that monk, and we'd all bow at the same time to the Bodhi tree. And then he would turn and come down to each of us and bow and say, Oh, good morning. You know, and connect, look in the eye. Really heartfelt, good morning. And then everyone left. And I'd go on with practice, and Shabuya-san would do his his um, caretaking of everything for the day. Well, once, and, and this is where I felt him embody these fields of you know this transformational becoming more who we are, being human, bringing together all those. Uh, beautiful parts of ourselves, bringing them out and learning how to deal with the difficult parts of ourselves without attachment to the one and rejection of the other. Um, because I, I just would see him be angry and be upset dealing with the, the uh, administration folks. So once he had to go to Patna, like eight-hour drive away, and came back, and he, he really didn't look good. I knew he had a bad day. And it wasn't that fun in the furo that night. And I didn't even expect to particularly see him at two, but there he was at two o'clock. And then we went down. He was, you know, very serious. Got to our dungeon spot, 2 a.m., and started to sit. And then I saw him just, because I was peeking all the time, right? Unmindful. Uh-huh. It was like watching the hour hand of a clock. Very slowly, over four hours, his body was bending over. And he was just exhausted, just having to deal with all that dukkha, difficulty. And he just was bending over and bending over. And I was just, you know, just been two months a stone still mastery. And I, I so idealized him. I was like, my jaw was dropping. He, he was tired. <laughs> he was tired. And he was trying to stay, you know, awake. And he was kind of bending him over, bending over, bending over, bending over. And just before six, in his head's a few inches from the floor, he makes a snoring sound. Yeah. He lets himself go unconscious for a couple of seconds, like that. And then he just, like, it was no jump from that state to ringing the bell, sitting up, and we go up, we do the meditation and the walking and the reading, and then we walk to the, to the edge of the temple, to bow to the Bodhi tree, and there were six or eight Japanese pilgrims in the spread in the garden and the raked sand, you know, and the reeds, the bamboo, kind of spread in the beautiful garden where they shouldn't be, with their cameras ready to capture this spiritual moment with this great master, you know, and a line of a dozen foreigner practitioners. Uh, and it, it was a, it was March. Full moon. The full moon was just setting, and the and the rising sun was just rising, 
kind of like on either side. And in the in the sort of haze of the morning, you could see these figures out there. And Shabuya-san was doing the bow, and halfway down the bow, this came out this ferocious roar. I didn't even know where it was coming from at first, and I was looking behind it because it seemed to come from everywhere. It felt like the whole temple was shaking. It felt like the sky was shattering. It felt like everything that was sand was water that was shaking. Even the Bodhi tree seemed to shake. You know, and then I realized it was Shibuya-san yelling at the at the at the pilgrims, and I, I later learned that the words he was using was something like "you foolish jackasses" or something like that. And it was it was it was very effective because cameras went flying in those days. It was film, nothing digital. It was film rolls went streaming like streamers and. And the people were just, they were all gone in a second, in, in, in f- less than five seconds. He never, he never, except for the roar, he didn't move his rest of his body, he didn't stop, except for that few seconds, he didn't stop the bow. He completed the bow, came back up, and then turned around, and this time there was a visiting monk, so he bowed to the monk, and he comes to me, and I'm still in shock. And I'm traumatized by this. I'm so identified with this teacher, and spent so, I'm so intimate and close with him. You know, and I kind of sense all his sufferings and, and his great samvega, his great light, spiritual power. And uh, so I'm just traumatized by the moment and the experience. And I'm sort of shaking. He bows down, and then he waits. He's waiting for me to make eye contact before he says, Ohio Gazimus, as usual. And I remember hesitating. I couldn't do it. Couldn't look at him. But he wouldn't move. And so finally I look at him. Look at him. And I still remember, you know, uh, this is like 1976, so all these years later, I remember the glow of the setting moon in one eye and and the glow of the rising sun in the other eye and this twinkle and this ever-slight, joyous smile. (laughs) Oh, Heil Gesimus, I said back. And he went down the line. He's one cool dude, you know. (laughs) Embodying all that we're doing, all, all these practices that transform the, the personality, because he, he had this incredible meta-connectedness with his, his, with his environment and with those who were there, and also a really fierce compassion. You know, this like the moral equivalent of, of aggression or anger. Like, he could say no, but not from a place of ill will, not from that root, that unhealthy root of hatred. Just not possible. You know, he knew how to make boundaries, but his heart was just um, rooted in compassion and metta. So he had this very strong yet fluid personality. You know, I think it's where I first had got that image of bamboo heart, mind. That its strength is in its hollowness and its yielding. Bamboo, you can't break it. It's really hard to break. Even in hurricanes, it flows this way, it flows that way. Yields one way or the other. Its strength is in its vulnerability. And then it comes back to center. So we had the the equanimity, you know. The equipoise of mind that wasn't tilted to the point of being brittle and breaking. Just return to center, return to center. And and he spoke to the transcendent, you know, always, to awakening, to liberation, to using our lives wisely, the precious birth wisely. That there, that there is more 
to life and death. There is more to the personality. Yeah, develop. Make ourselves as good as we can be. Whatever this we is, this royal we, as Michelle was talking about last night, I call it, I call it the committee. There's no one separate, isolated, substantial ego, ego self. But each moment this committee gathers and meets. And the CEO is like a mo- the moment of knowing, consciousness. And then there's feeling tone is always there. So feeling tone is at the committee meeting. And perception is there. Contact is there. Any number of volitional states, always there. If volition isn't there, nothing happens. There's no <laughs> consciousness. But volition, our, in, our intention, works for anyone else at the table. So if greed, hatred, or delusion, or any of its offspring are there, volition will work for that. Envy, jealousy, attachment, fear, anger, aggression. But if mindfulness, and mindfulness is associates, metta, karuna, compassion, joy, equanimity, if they're at the table, volition only works. Volition is like secretary. It's that intentional sense of will, of choice. It gathers together energy and other volitional states like metta or mindfulness or, you know, skillful or unskillful states and makes them happen. That's what volition does. There's no one doing it. There's just intention before we lift our foot, move it, and step. Volition is there before each thought. That's why we start to ask you to be mindful of that mental impulse, that about-to moment before movement, just the obvious ones, you know. If there wasn't any intention, we'll just try doing a walking meditation toward the water and see what happens. If there's, no, if, if there's only one intention, just, we just keep walking until, until we were you know, drowning in the water. But because there's intention, we, we, can, we stop. We know when to stop. It's not a self that decides to stop. It's intention that activates the elemental natures of the body to stop, you know, and just awareness of the end of our walking path. Intention that turns around and walks again. Why it's so important is that intention teaches us several things. First of all, it teaches us the tremendous space of the present moment. If if we weren't able to connect with intention, then every time we were angry, we'd, be, we'd drown or be swept away by our story, our angry thoughts. We'd always speak the angry words that, that we felt like speaking to someone who offends us. Or we'd always strike out when we felt like doing that. But because of intention, because we can notice intention and bring awareness and feel the anger... There's that contact, there's that opening, there's the immersion of mindfulness that feels the sensations of anger, maybe understands the message behind it, that pauses, lets those angry moments appear and disappear, and connects with a deeper intention, you know, to communicate, maybe with fierce compassion, but to communicate, that's not okay. What you did or said is hurtful or isn't right. You know, and then to correct error out of that wisdom, out of that knowledge. So intention is there as part of that committee that meets every moment with consciousness, feeling tone, perception, other volitional states, either skillful or unskillful. And we can't say enough that any moment where mindfulness is there, it's so powerful and magnetic and protective, as Michelle was telling us last night, that in that moment, it doesn't, it cannot sit at the same table with any of the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. They don't get in. 
They don't have that moment. They're not part of the committee in that moment. They may be the next, but not when there's mindfulness. And so, just to connect and, and feel that possibility of shifting the intention from an unskillful thought pattern, speech, or action to a skillful one. Very powerful. And secondly, awareness of intentions teaches us the cause-effect nature of this mind-body. You know, certain thoughts are the condition for certain sensations in the body or sensations in the body have effect on our mental moods. Uh, skillful states can cause other skillful states. The habit of negative thinking can be the cause of other negative thinking. And, and just really simple things, too. Because there's a rising movement and all the sensations, that's a cause for mindfulness. The elemental nature of body is a cause for mindfulness. A cause for mindfulness is something to be mindful of, to feel as real, that has texture, body, mental states, thoughts. Even thoughts have textures. Every thought, whether we see it or not, leaves a footprint in the body. In times we feel that, just a moment, we catch a thought and immediately feel a connecting sensation. So it teaches us the cause-effect nature of reality, of this body-mind. It's more wisdom. You know, it's not self that thinks the thoughts. The thoughts think themselves. Thinking happens without a thinker. Most thoughts we're taught in Buddhist psychology, arise from sense imprints, the five physical ones, and some mental, stray mental thought, like a memory, you know, our creative mind that's planning. Those are the condition for thoughts, not someone who's thinking the thoughts. So intentions start to teach us that, because the sense of choice is easy to identify with. You know, we're cut by it, or... Well, who's doing this? Well, intention is doing it. Intention is that sort of willful force behind every moment. Even the ones that it's impossible to see is said to be an intention before every heartbeat, which is why, you know, we hear the stories of some Indian ascetics who can stop their heart for periods of time intentionally. And it teaches us about the emptiness that the sense of self is only built around thoughts born of greed, hatred, delusion. And our core being isn't made up of greed, hatred, delusion. Those are mere adventitious elements. They're visitors, temporary visitors. And as we understand that, again, using the bronze bowl, the mindfulness and metta as the polisher, bringing out brightly shining, intrinsic luminosity of heart, mind. We understand the real meaning of anatta. Emptiness means emptiness of greed, hatred, delusion. It's not a teaching of annihilation. There's no one to be annihilated. When, when the Buddha was once accused of that, he said, he was accused of teaching annihilism, he said, I do teach annihilism. I teach the annihilation of greed, hatred, delusion. That's all. I don't teach about annihilation of self. So, you know, our journey is like getting to know states like wanting, not an ill will against the Wanting Mind. This is a poem by Holly Hughes, Mind Wanting More. She writes, Only a beige slat of sun above the horizon, like a shade pulled, not quite down. Otherwise, clouds, sea rippled here and there, birds reluctant to fly. The mind wants a shaft of sun to stir the gray porridge of clouds. An osprey 
to stitch the sea to sky with its bared wings, some dramatic music, a symphony perhaps, a Chinese gong. But the mind always wants more than it has. One more bright day of sun, one more clear night in bed with the moon, one more hour to get the words right, one more chance for the heart in hiding to emerge from its thicket in dried grasses, as if this quiet day with its tentative light weren't enough, as if joy weren't strewn all around. It's a gentle approach to the sensation of wanting, to understanding wanting. There's many kinds of desire in, in the Buddhist Pali. There's many words for desire. And the and some are entangling, some are like those insatiable, hungry ghosts wanting. But other desires are really good, and the Buddha encouraged us to awaken desire and use desire to awaken energy, courageous energy, and to settle down into confidence and trust in a path, and to use that force of desire for awakening. You know, metta is a desire for connection, to love and be loved unconditionally. Compassion is that fearless presence in the face of difficulty, suffering, pain, whatever in whatever form it manifests. It's just that willingness to be present in a fearless way, not afraid. Compassion is a sensation. And as Michelle said last night, it's pleasant. And that's how we notice the difference between genuine moments of compassion and grief or sorrow, or certainly the difference between compassionate presence and fear of the suffering, of the pain, whether it's our own or another's. So the gentle approach and understanding the many, many kinds of desire, including the desire that eventually dispels all desires, and that's where the transformational aspect of the practice, you know, building this healthy sense of ourselves, connectedness within ourselves and around us, we start to glimpse the the further reaches, the the depths of that samvega, you know, like side by side with sort of the revolution of the elements of our being, of our emotions and thoughts and sensations of the body, you know, the cleansing and purification of them can happen side by side with the wisdom that sees beyond. In fact, without the transcendent part, we can't really develop ourselves without attachment, without identification. But because of the wisdom transcendent part, we, we can work toward, you know, honing ourselves and the skillful thoughts and emotions and working carefully with our karmic knots and patterns without overwhelm or identification. Because there's the trans- transcendent part, there is that sensitivity that ultimately there's something more than life and death. There's also something beyond personality. But we need the groundedness of the transformational work. We need to be in the thicket as well and feel the wanting mind, feel the attachment and fears. Otherwise, we're liable to, to over-identify with the transcendent. And, you know, and it's like Michelle was talking about last night. It's, just, it's that sense of ascension, you know, rising above, getting caught in the realms of joy, the, the pleasures of the inner realms of Dhamma, calm and peace and so forth, forth. So we need that embodiment. So they work together. They work side by side. We bring non-attachment as much as we can as an attitude at first and then as a felt sense to all our experience. Particularly poignant, you know, when Michelle was talking about putting out all the energy we can within our limits and capabilities, you know, working within ourselves, 
doing whatever we do to help ourselves and help other beings. And then, but without being attached to the results. Because that's identifying with what we do. It's having an expectation. It's putting ourself in it all the way through. It's not as empowering. It's not as powerful. It's not as effective in making change. In all the years I worked with um, the contemplative mind in society, you know, where we did retreats in, um, in institutions, big corporations, or uh, like with the, the Green Group, the leaders of the environmental movement. You know, it, it was all about getting them in touch with their motivation because there's such a burnout rate, you know, in the helping fields, the helping professions or philanthropic work. And uh, I go to all these conferences, four of them a year, of philanthropy groups coming together. And then they're just very intense workshops because there's so much dukkha around it, you know, so much identification. People's overwhelmed with how to help and people receiving how to receive and the people engineering you know the the heads of foundations it's really very interesting and the classes the meditation classes I'd leave it'd be really full people could really hear it they're so open you know people who are who are willing to feel what's going on in themselves and the world around them are really open to finding a way through, you know, without losing touch of themselves, how to live this life, how to be embodied, and how to have some sense of there's more than just what appears before us. And in the, also in the mid-70s, I went to visit with a group, a group of us went to visit this renowned forest monk in the northeast of Thailand. The name was Ajahn Chah. And he's a great teacher. Uh, and I remember him talking about non-attachment in the way of, he picked up his, his favorite teacup and held up his teacup. And he said, um, he said, I love this cup. I really care for it. But I regard it as already broken. Because someday it will break. You know, it'll drop or someone will pick it up or I'll lose it. And if I'm attached to it, I'll suffer. But if I think of the cup as already broken, every time I use it, I'll enjoy it. You know, Michelle was saying last night about if we, if we embrace, if we can embrace the vulnerability that opens to change, that's open to impermanence, to things as they really are, the metta is already there the care is built in to being that open and in touch and vulnerable, to being in touch with things changing and breaking. It's like my broken watch. Every five minutes I have to reclip it. If I take it to a watch person in, in, in Asia, in one minute they fix it and it works for a year. But I can't do it. I try I bite it with my teeth, I pinch it, I, you know. I can't do it. So I, I just got, had my diving watch stolen a couple of months ago. And another watch I use that has a really cool light, you know. I love lights. <laughs> it's in a six-month repair status in Bangkok. So I found this old watch that I actually got in, in Burma maybe over ten years ago. And it's, it still works as long as you kind of move it around. Mostly I have to wear it like a bracelet. <laughs> and I never really expected it to work, but, you know, every day we look at it, and it's working. And if it stopped working, that'd be okay. Since it's already broken. You know, the relationship is already over. The person we love has already died. A part of ourself, you know, we cherish... It's already changed. That openness, that attitude allows us to connect and care all the more, feel all the more compassion 
for our being, our precious being. So some Vega gathers these elements of transformation, awakens us to them, to that quiet potential and possibility, and maybe the urgency. You know, if we have one glimpse of a meta moment, it's true, it's genuine. It's hard to forget. It's unlikely we'll forget if we have more than one. We have a few of them. We'll know what's genuine when we know it's really true. And we really feel it from our, the marrow of our being, of our bones. So we'll do what we can to restructure ourselves. I was just reading an article my friend sent me about brain research. Doug was talking about MRIs a week ago. And you were talking about them this morning. So they, this, they've been doing this MRI research in New York <clears throat> on Buddhist monks and experienced meditators. And for a long time, you know, they, they see these two brain networks happening. And one was about task orientation. So you're wired up and, and uh, blood flow is seen in the head. It's particularly strong, you know, lights up, actually echoes with music, with task orientation. And it's a kind of seesaw. Then the other network, which they used to not pay attention to, uh, is more intrinsic. The first one is more extrinsic. It's to do with task orientation things, like when we do sports or, or poor tea. You know, it, it, that's that in extrinsic function network of the brain. And the other one started to appear when they were wired up in the MRI and they weren't having tasks. It seemed like boredom led to some self-reflection. And that's how they started to, like 10 years ago, have a sense of what they called this default uh, network, neuron network, neurological network in the brain. And since then, they thought it may have a lot to do with a lot more than just you know, boredom and, um, and distraction. Because when they measure monks and meditators, that, that seesaw function of one being up and the other being down disappears, and they're both up. And it seems that when they're both up, it's particularly true with the really experienced meditators who feel this harmonious connection where the psychological walls of intrinsic and extrinsic falls away. It's just a oneness with the environment, the surround, the other living beings and the whole world. So that's pretty cool. Their study is from the point of view that the brain does all this, you know. But I'm actually presenting it as... The, the mindfulness is the lead and all that, and the brain and body function as vehicles for our, our development, our awakening. All the awakening factors, the bojangas, the Buddha said their purpose is, is to incline, incline the heart and mind to awakening, just like a river inclines to the ocean, to the sea. So I, I would say that about these practices in regard to our, our, our personalities transforming. They happen not by our desires and fears, not by our agendas of wanting to change or fix. Yeah, it's helpful to see those patterns. It's not helpful to be angry at them or to diss ourselves, to disrespect ourself or you know have self-loathing self will do understand that they're there we may never understand why all these why we have all these karmic knots it may be a genetic lineage or karma you know 
it's best not to figure out all the stories because they're endless. But just learning to to touch in on them, like that homeopathic dose, and then let our metta immune system respond, our mindfulness immune system respond to understanding them. That's what eventually transforms them and makes the the difficult. We start learning to use it. There's a term in American sports, usually around baseball, called you know playing within oneself, and that's like when the baseball player, you know, or artist, dancer, um, meditator, liver of life, at any one time knows their limits and their capabilities, and that they don't try to short shift themselves on that particular day of play on their limitations and they also they push against their capabilities but try not to go beyond what they have the energy for that day you know just to stretch knowing one's limits and capabilities and the and the result is that like when a commentator remarks that that person is really playing within themselves today because they, they move so gracefully. Maybe they don't hit the most home runs, you know, but they, they're in their element and watching them. It's like watching a, a really skilled surfer play with the wave. It seems so effortless. They dance with the wave, move up and down and turn, just in total attunement with the wave through their board, through their body. And that's what we're doing with this the elemental nature of our body and emotions, feeling tone, uh, and how to use that force of some vega sense of urgency to stay awake and have the motivation. You keep so much of this practice is the purification of volition, intention, toward that sort of ever ongoing, opening, awakening, being embodied, and the attitude of non-attachment. Some of what we have done here for 10 days or three weeks, we leave behind. And we'll, we'll talk about that more tomorrow with the integration talk. And what we, what we take with us, we already have. And reflecting wisely and your own wisdom you know, has come out of each and every one of you here in the hall, in interviews, and mostly in practice, that, um, you know, when something as simple and pure, innocent, is there, is there a sensation for neither pleasant or unpleasant? You know, we've learned a lot about sensations, the felt sense of pleasant experience, and the difference between that and attachment to it. We've learned a lot about a felt moment, experience that's unpleasant, and any aversion or ill will or fear of it, the difference between just the one and the other. And then Tim was asking about, is there a sensation for neither pleasant or unpleasant. In other words, is there a sensation for neutral feeling that's not indifference, that's not a disconnect, dissociation? So I leave you with this. What is the sensation of peace? 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.